Well, as we begin, that's actually a great segue. I want you to begin by thinking about your high school and college years when you were in a speech class. If you probably feel your pulse right now, it's probably going up thinking about speech class. At least that is what it was like for me in high school and college. The dreaded speech class, the fact that I would look down on my schedule and know that I had to give a speech in front of my peers, it was cringeworthy. My heart would race, beads of sweat would roll profusely down my head, and that continued into the college years. Maybe you have similar experiences, maybe not, but I thought I was done with those days until I began seminary four years ago. And then it was my understanding that I was going to have to create and develop a sermon, multiple sermons, eight of them in fact, and then preach them in front of Tom Pennington as he stood there with his fountain pen and critiqued that. Well, thank the Lord I passed, and I'll be done in May. But speech classes and things of that nature have generally in the past uh, been a touchy subject. When we get to Genesis chapter 44, we come across the longest speech recorded in Genesis and one of the longest speeches recorded in the Old Testament. In this speech, Judah isn't being given a grade, but in fact, Judah is pleading for not only his life, but his brother's. That's what we find in Genesis 44 as we continue our study of the book of Genesis. This morning's message, as you can see, is titled, The Tale of Two Brothers, Joseph's Final Test and Judah's Impassioned Speech. Carrie is right. We are coming up to the end of our study in Genesis, and we are almost to the climax of the final section or toledote of Genesis, where Joseph will reveal himself to his brothers. Now, I had a few people ask me this week if chapter 44 was that chapter. I said, no, it's 45. So you're going to have to wait two more weeks until we get there and see Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. Well, it's not an understatement to say that the Jacob Toledot, or Better known, I think, as the Joseph narrative is a riveting portion of Scripture. Uh, what began as a story of certain brothers and certain family essentially leaving a brother, Joseph, to die in 37 has resulted in a dramatic story in a series of unexpected events with a focus on two brothers or two sons of Jacob. That would be Joseph and Judah. You remember where we've been, so we won't take long just reviewing, but in chapters 39 through 41, uh, we saw God's providential working of bringing Joseph to rise in power in Egypt. Now, of course, we've looked at that as we've studied uh, the past several weeks. Joseph has risen to power in Egypt, second in command of Pharaoh. Again, that's, that's a wild turn of events from what we saw in 37. A key in that rise was the fact that 
Pharaoh had a dream and Joseph was able to interpret that dream. And that dream, of course, revealed that there would be seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. Joseph was 30 years old at this point when he was appointed second in command of the land of Egypt. And he was able to save that nation and many nations from the devastating famine that he predicted would hit. And that has come to pass, of course, as we've seen in our, our study. But for the purpose of the Jacob Toledot or the Joseph narrative, Genesis records that one of those families was ultimately saved because of God's providential bringings of Joseph to Egypt. The famine hits, so the brothers minus Benjamin are tasked by Jacob, an old man at this point, to go to Egypt and to buy grain. Little did they know when they arrived there that they would stand before their long-lost brother of a couple decades, Joseph. At this point, as you know, they haven't recognized him. They've interacted with him on several occasions. We've studied that, but they don't know it's him. Of course, on the flip side of that is Joseph knows exactly who they are. He knows exactly who they are, so he continues his interaction with them, and we've seen that in chapters 42 through 45, and we'll conclude that at the midway point of 45 next week. But here I've listed for you sort of the outline of this cycle in 43 through 45 where Jacob sends the brothers to Egypt for grain so they will be able to withstand the famine. And ultimately throughout that, there's been two key interactions that they have had uh, with Joseph. And of course, that's where we are today in chapter 44, an interaction between Joseph and the brothers. Joseph and the brothers, except for this time around, one of the brothers, Benjamin, has finally made his way onto the scene, and he is there, and this interaction continues to unfold, building suspense until finally Joseph can take it no longer and ultimately reveals who he is to his, his family. But if we pull back quickly and sort of get out of the trees and just look at the forest and see exactly what's going on here in terms of the storyline of redemption... The Jacob Toledot has presented for us two sons of Jacob that are highly influential and key in understanding this final section of Genesis, Joseph and Judah, as we've already noted. Joseph rises in power. Again, he interprets Pharaoh's dream. He tells us seven years of famine, seven years of plenty. And it's because of that that Jacob sends his sons to Egypt in order to buy grain, and the family of some sorts begins to uh, reunite. It's sort of an informal reunion because not everybody's on the same page at this point. But ultimately, as we will see in 45, Joseph breaks down because of the impassioned speech that we'll see from Judah today. All of the brothers go back home to get Jacob, and then Jacob and Joseph finally reunite, and here's what's key. After the family reunion, so to speak, is when Joseph then pronounces his final blessings on all of the sons. 
And as we've seen in previous chapters of Genesis, specifically with Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau, those blessings have a prophetic element or a prophetic nature to them. So when all of the sons are finally gathered together, Jacob, the old man, will pronounce blessings on all of them. Relating to Joseph and Judah, there's a pronouncement or a blessing on Joseph and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, if we'll see that in 48, and then again in 49, Joseph is blessed. And it is through actually Joseph that you see the early rise in that particular tribe for God's purpose. I've mentioned before that Joshua is actually a Josephite. And what does Joshua do? He's the one responsible for taking the nation, the children of Israel, into where? The promised land. So Jacob pronounces a blessing on Joseph for an immediate reign. But then Judah comes in in 49, and Jacob pronounces an eventual rule, an eventual reign from the tribe of Judah, and that connects us into Christ. So what I want us to see here is that through God's providence, he has been overseeing 37 through 50 by keeping Jacob and his sons alive through the famine, through Joseph, to bring the family together to pronounce those prophetic blessings that will ultimately give rise to Jesus Christ as a descendant of Judah. Now, that's what's going on, big picture-wise, in Genesis. Well, as we begin to focus in on chapter 44 in particular, which is what we'll study this morning, an overall summary of Genesis 44 is this, that Joseph concludes his testing of his brothers, setting the stage for Judah's impassioned speech and paving the way for Joseph to reveal himself to his brothers. So if you're a fan of roller coasters, we are still working our way up to the top of that big drop, and next chapter, two weeks from now, you will go down. You will go down the coaster, and you will see the excitement that takes place at the revealing of Joseph. So this section, this chapter, can be divided into two major events. You can tell from the title, two major events. So let's begin looking at that first event here in verses 1 through 17, and we'll call that event Joseph's final testing of his brothers. This is Joseph's final testing of his brothers, verses 1 through 17. You follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not afar off when Joseph said to his house steward, up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So as we begin to look at this first major event, this first event over verses 1 through 17 can be divided into three parts. Uh, that first part that we'll study together is the plan. 
Uh, This is the planting of the silver cup. The planting of the silver cup. So Joseph has prepared and strategized to put his brothers in a unique situation to test them. To test them. That's the plan he puts together here in verses one through five, the planting of the silver cup. So over the last couple chapters, we've studied this together, that Joseph has put together a series of tests in order to see how his brothers will respond. What's interesting, if you sort of gather together these chapters and you do a sort of side-by-side comparison with what took place in chapter 37 when the brothers rejected Joseph, you will see that Joseph has essentially duplicated what happened. Of course, there's some variances and nuances that are different, but what Joseph is intending to do is put all of the brothers up to the fore and to see how they will respond as it relates to Benjamin. As it relates to Benjamin. In chapter 37, two decades prior, the brothers had no regard for Joseph They were dishonest to Jacob, so here in 44, Joseph sets the stage to see if there has been any change in their heart and how they will uh, respond. As I mentioned, this is essentially a replication of what we see in chapter 37. All of the brothers were against Joseph there. Will they be against Benjamin here? So the plan is set, the brothers have their sacks with food and money, and notice Joseph tells his house steward to place the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. So verse four, you can look at it with me, says they were not far away from the city when Joseph ordered that his house steward go after the brothers and overtake them. When you overtake them, say to them, That Hebrew word overtake means to collect or to to reach out and grab. Notice the confidence with which Joseph speaks when you overtake them. One, this shows the dominating power of Joseph and his men, but this also, I think, links us to sort of the heart change and transformation that the brothers have as well. Uh, They aren't looking to stir up trouble like they did in 37, In fact, they were just looking to go get grain, keep the peace, and then make it back home to Jacob. But under Joseph's careful planning, he sends the steward out, and the steward here at the end of verse four says, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So Joseph's house steward was to accuse the brothers that they stole one of Joseph's special cups. Now you notice here it says that Joseph used this cup for uh, divination. Divination in the ancient world included finding out hidden information about the future in particular. So an, an example of this from the ancient world would be that the ruler or the leader or the one conducting this uh, sort of process would mix water with oil or attempt to mix water with oil. And as those liquids would configure and slowly interact, uh, the the person 
overseeing the divination would then be able to tell something about the future based on what they had seen in the configuration of the, the water and the, the oil. Not the best way to give prophecy, just be a true prophet of God. Deuteronomy 13 and 18, and you'd be able to give prophecy of the future. But was Joseph into divination? I mean, this is, this is sort of alarming. It's possible, but it's very unlikely. It's best to sort of understand this language as all part of the plan and the testing. I mean, Joseph's brothers have no idea that he's a man of God. In their mind, look, he's an Egyptian. He's alongside Pharaoh. He's a pagan worshiping multiple gods. He's not of the one true God. So this is most likely just part of the plan. But the plan is in motion. The silver cup was hidden, and the brothers have been overtaken. And that takes us to the second part of this final testing, and that is the predicament, the predicament, the finding of the silver cup. As you could imagine, Joseph plans for the cup to be found, and the cup is found. You follow along as I read in verse 6. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. So as we just read, and as I know that you could see, I mean, the brothers are completely shocked at what is transpiring completely shocked. It makes absolutely no sense to them because, and it is true, they have been operating above reproach. They're trying to fulfill their father's orders, go to Egypt, get grain, go back to the land of Canaan and continue living life. They are shocked and they cannot believe that this situation has turned this way. I mean, look at verse 9. They even suggest the worst of punishments. With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. I mean, they're so confident in this situation that they don't have the cup that they are all in unanimous agreement that, look, if you find the cup, whoever has the cup, yeah, let, him, let him die. I mean, their confidence level is through the roof right now. We don't, we don't have it. In their mind, there is no way any guilt will be found. So the brothers lower their sacks and open them before the servant. And the search begins. And lo and behold, the cup, according to verse 12, was found in Benjamin's sack. 
Now it's interesting if you look at verse 12 here, notice how the search was conducted. It began with the oldest, ending with the youngest. Now, we've seen something like this already. If you look back in your Bible at chapter 43, verse 33, when they, the brothers had a meal with Joseph, remember how they were seated around the table. <laughs> they were seated in order that they were born, right? Has anybody in here ever seen a movie? No one? Okay. <laughs> this illustration won't work then. Well, you've seen movies, and you have definitely seen movies where the big reveal is at the end, right? You have no idea what's going on, and then the reveal hits, and then it's shocking. You're like, I didn't see. My wife actually sees all of those things coming. She's able to decipher those things. I'm shocked every time. <laughs> so you notice, there, I mean, there's two times here that if the brothers were to go back and watch the movie about what dress transpired, two times at dinner and then here for the search where they are being set and they are being searched in accordance with their age. How, what is going on? I mean, <laughs> well, looking back, we understand what's going on and that should have tipped them off to this mysterious man, Joseph, with the silver cup the fact of the matter is, Joseph is overseeing this entire thing and looking, at, looking and watching and re-watching this, though the brothers would definitely have caught on it at this point. They searched the oldest to the youngest, and the worst case scenario for the brothers came true. The silver cup was in Benjamin's sack. Why is this the worst case scenario? Because of their father, Jacob. Remember <laughs> Bless his heart, he was pleading with everything in him to not let Jacob, or rather, to not let Benjamin go up to Egypt. Jacob was terrified that Benjamin would leave and he would die. Not only would he have lost Joseph, but then his next favorite son, Benjamin, could potentially die as well. So literally, this is the worst possible situation for the brothers at this point. As it stands, they're gonna to have to go back and tell Jacob that his worst fear and nightmare came true. Benjamin is out, he, he, is, he is gone. It's interesting the way this information comes across to us, by the way. This is the beauty of Hebrew narrative. We are sitting in a reader-privileged position. We have every idea of what's going on. All of the brothers have no clue. I mean, imagine their faces when they see that silver cup. The suspense lies for us in seeing how the brothers will respond. Is it gonna be a repeat of 37, which was an absolute disaster? Or are we gonna see character transformation here in 44? We are seated on Joseph's shoulders. He knows what's going on. But the brothers are in ignorance, they, they have no idea that this is a test. Well, that brings us to the third and final part of this final testing, the payoff. The payoff, the purpose of the silver cup. And in other words, did the plan work? Is the testing coming to fruition? Is Joseph going to see exactly what he wants to see? 
Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now notice here quickly, and I think this is something you should note in your Bible, the prominence of Judah, the fourthborn. Since chapter 37, he has emerged as a leader of the brothers. In 37, Reuben attempts to take that leadership, but the brothers don't listen to him, they listen to Judah. In 42 and 43, Reuben tries to persuade his father Jacob to let Benjamin go, And he actually offers up his sons if something was to happen. But Judah turns right around and offers up himself in 44. So Judah has emerged as a leader. He is the spokesperson. Of course, as you saw from the title of the message, it is Judah that gives the impassioned speech. It's not the other brothers. But this is an amazing comparison from the Judah that we know back in 38. Chapter 38 was a complete disaster. Read that, read that story or that narrative and you're distraught with Judah and his family. But not here, not anymore. So the payoff, the plan, it works. The brothers are bought, brought back before him. Now the key question will be, How will they react in regards to Benjamin? Will they bail on him like they did Joseph in 37, two decades prior? Or will they protect him? This is what Joseph wants to see. It isn't necessarily about seeing the physicality of his brothers, although he was definitely pleased and encouraged to see them in the flesh. He wants to see if their character is transformed. Will they treat Benjamin different than they treated him? So I love it. Verse 16, Judah speaks up. He intercedes. He basically says, what, what can we do? Well, we don't, we don't have an answer. I mean, put yourself in Judah's place there. There's really nothing to say at this point. I mean, they're all blown away that the cup was there. Judah says, what can we do? We, we have no answer. But notice verse 16, another crucial point to highlight in your Bible. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Judah is admitting on behalf of all the brothers that not only what happens here in 44 appears to be wrong iniquity because the cup is there somehow, But he is also confessing the iniquity that transpired back in 37. Joseph is, or Judah rather, is bringing to the fore 
that him and the brothers were all sinful as it relates to Joseph's exile in 37. Look at verse 17. Watch what Joseph says. Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. This is the culmination of the test. I love this. He, I mean, he, he basically says, look, Benjamin, he's staying with me. You guys are free to go. I mean, second in power, second in command over Egypt is declaring, look, I'm, I'm gonna keep Benjamin. You, you guys go home. You, you, you have a free pass. You, you can leave. This is chapter 37, 2.0. Will they abandon Benjamin? Well, that brings us to the second major event in this chapter, Judah's impassioned speech. Judah's impassioned speech. You follow along as I begin reading in verse 18. Then Judah approached him and said, O oh, my Lord, May your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead so he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, However, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, Go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So Judah's impassioned speech can be divided into three uh, main parts. You definitely recognize this first part. It's a retelling of history. It's a retelling of history. So everything that is laid out in verses 18 through 29 is basically Judah recounting of the interactions that had just transpired in chapters uh, 42 and 43. He's recounting those things from his point of view. He's taken full leadership responsibilities. As I noted earlier, this is the longest speech recorded in Genesis and he pleads with Joseph on behalf of Benjamin and the brothers. He begins by recounting in summary form the brothers' interaction with Jacob regarding bringing Benjamin to, 
to Egypt. And again, that sort of heightens the suspense here. Jacob did not want to leave or to let Benjamin go. So Judah makes that clear. Judah doesn't recount the full history, but rather he just pulls together several crucial details of sort of this historical retelling. So let's look at some of these details quickly here, and we don't have time to look at all of them because there are more, but let me point out just some obvious ones. Uh, The first detail that you, you need to understand here is that Judah positions himself in front of Joseph. Judah positions himself in front of Joseph. Uh, Notice back in verse 18, it says, then Judah approached him. Judah approached him. You could also say Judah came near to him. In fact, turn over one chapter to 45.4. When Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers in 45.4, He requests that the brothers, all of them, come near. So it's interesting here in Hebrew, it's a verb and a preposition. In what we see here in verse 18 and in 45.4, this sort of construction also occurs in Ezekiel 44.13 of approaching God's throne. So that's the idea here. Judah is intimately standing in front of Joseph. He's getting really as close to Joseph proximity-wise as he can to plead his case. And then on the flip side of that, in chapter 45 that we'll study in two weeks, when, jo- when Joseph calls all of the brothers up to him, he has them draw near or come near to him as close as possible. It's a dramatic effect to show what is transpiring in this speech. It's not a detached plea, but it is an intimate request for Joseph to show grace. And it shows the honesty of the brothers. So Judah's position is key. What else is key? Well, Judah stresses the Lord-servant relationship. You notice all throughout He refers to himself as Joseph's servant, Joseph's servant over and over. And at the same time, he refers to Joseph as Lord. Now, if you were here many weeks ago in our study of Genesis, you'll remember when it was Jacob making his way back home to Isaac When he came face to face with Esau, how did he speak with Esau? The same way, that servant-lord relationship. So Judah stresses the idea that Joseph is Lord, simply meaning that they are humbling himself or themselves, rather, before Joseph. Judah also highlights Jacob's love for Benjamin. Judah also highlights Jacob's love for for Benjamin. In doing so, it's very interesting. You can see this, verse 20. Uh, Look at it with me. Uh, We said to my Lord, we have an old father and a little child. Clearly, Benjamin isn't a little child when they're retelling this history. Uh, But we understand what Judah is trying to convey. He's sort of softening the blow, this young child, right? Be gracious. 
So Judah highlights Jacob's love for Benjamin. Another detail worth pointing out is that Judah points out Jacob's bad health and his old age. Now Judah shrewdly brings together the youthfulness of Benjamin and Jacob's old age, hoping that Joseph would be moved by this and touched by these realities. It's sort of embellishing the story a little bit. That's what we see here. And then a final detail, and again, there's more, but the final one for our time is that Judah emphasizes the death of Joseph. Judah emphasizes the death of Joseph. Another great point to mark in your Bible, this is the first time the brothers explicitly say that Joseph is dead. If you look in previous chapters of Genesis, uh, they, they never use explicit language, language like this. It's just always insinuating that he's just not around. Right? He, he's gone. We can't find him. That's sort of the attitude. Notice verse 27. You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces. I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So Judah has retold the history between their first visit to Egypt and standing before Joseph. But now he gives a prediction about the certainty of Jacob's death. And you'll, you'll see this unfold and it'll make more sense as we read uh, the next couple verses. Verse 30. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad of my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. So Judah now pleads with Joseph to allow Benjamin to return home to them. And he pleads on behalf of Jacob. He basically says, if Benjamin doesn't return, Jacob will surely die. His death is certain. For 20 years, Jacob has been torn apart by the fact that Joseph is gone, and he doesn't ultimately know what's happened to him. He assumes that he's probably dead and that he will never see him again. So the final decades of Jacob's life has been difficult because of the loss of Joseph. It has wrecked him. Joseph was his favorite son from his favorite wife. Now Benjamin has taken that place. But it's interesting here what Judah does. In third person form, Judah recounts that he has already said that he will stand in his place. I myself will stand in Benjamin's place. We can't miss what's going on here, and that is that Judah is laboring the love that Jacob has for Benjamin, but basically Judah is saying that same love that Jacob is exhibiting for Benjamin is the same love that he has for Joseph. 
So this suspense is slowly building, and this is ultimately the breaking point for Joseph in the next chapter. It's not the fact that his brothers are showing righteous character, although he is glad and happy for that. What he comes to realize is the great and deep love that Jacob has for him. That's ultimately what Judah's impassioned speech does. It stirs the emotions of the relationship that Jacob has with Joseph. He loves him. And that's displayed in his love for Benjamin as the brothers have been laboring. So we've seen a brief history. We've seen the certainty of Jacob's death if Benjamin doesn't make it back. Finally, the third part of this speech is a sacrificial conclusion. A sacrificial conclusion. Verse 33 and 34. Now therefore... Please let your servant, there's that language again, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with the brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Uh, notice that Judah's no longer recounting history. He's no longer speaking in third person. He's no longer using master, slave, lord, servant language. He basically comes to the fore and says, I will stand in his place. Take my life. Make me your slave. Do with me what you will as long as you let Benjamin go. In chapter 37, Judah basically hated Joseph and suggested slavery and death. In chapter 38, he had a horrible life, horrible sons, and acted wickedly. At the end of 38, his character is transformed. In 43, he emerges as a leader amongst the brothers. And now in 44, he is now saying that we could substitute his life for Benjamin's. Put him in the place of Benjamin. And by the way, this isn't the brothers like coercing him. Hey, man, take one for the team. <laughs> this is Judah himself as the leader saying, no, me. Me. I'll, I'll be the guy. Send, send Benjamin home. That, that's how this chapter ends. But quickly together, let's... Look at some final thoughts about Judah and Joseph, and this will bring us to 45, where we'll see him revealed. But notice how Joseph, notice how Joseph, or Judah rather, will stand in the place. He's emerged as a leader, and he will offer his life. But Joseph, on the other hand, come to find out all of his tests of the brothers, trying to probe deep into their heart, actually worked. That's what's wild. <laughs> the plan worked. His brothers were exposed, and this time, not like 37, he knows that the brothers deeply regret how they dealt with him in 37. 
but he understands that they will deal differently with Benjamin. He knows they will deal differently with him. But even more important than that is that Joseph knows that his father is alive and that his father loves him deeply. That's the breaking point for Joseph. Thanks to an impassioned speech from Judah, the stage is set. Joseph will reveal himself to his brothers, and you'll have to wait for that two weeks from now. Bow your head and pray with me. God, we are grateful for your word. Even your word as it relates to narrative. What a wonderful story this is to see you bringing your people back together. And not merely accidental, and not merely just to survive the famine, but ultimately so Jacob can pronounce blessings on his son, which paved the way for the rise of a king that will come from Judah, that will come from David, and will be born in Bethlehem, your son, uh, Jesus Christ. We know he rules and reigns in the heavens. Help him rule and reign in our own hearts as we wait that final day where we will be brought into his kingdom for eternity. We ask all those things in Jesus' name, amen.